please open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 13. I'll be reading Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. Again, that is Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. Exodus chapter 13, starting at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, uh, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Titus. ask you to keep God's word open on your laps there to Genesis chapter 13, and we're going to continue our study in the book of Exodus. Well, I've... uh, I'm, I'm just aware of the fact that I've become uh, what I hated when I was the age of these young ladies. Um, I used to despise having to answer that question. The question that adults love to ask, you know, from the time that you're a little kid. But especially when you're in high school and especially when you're graduating, um, they love to ask, what are, what are your plans for after high school? I hated that. And now, look at me, I've become the annoying asker. How, how quickly I've forgotten what it feels like to, to be embarrassed by not having, you know, your whole future settled for you by, by your last semester in high school. I remember that, that expectation was heavy upon me, and I just didn't know, and it felt terrible to have to answer that question. And the truth of the matter is that many graduates find themselves in that weird space at this time of year between joy and fear, really, between elation and uncertainty. They've gained their freedom, you know, they've flung their caps into the air, but when they come back down to earth, um, they're really unsure of what to do or where to go. And the Israelites must have found themselves in a very similar situation, having finally gained their freedom after 430 years of slavery. So they leave Egypt uh, with their kneading bowls slung across their shoulders like a sash and uh, with a fistful of graduation gifts as plunder. But I imagine that as soon as they crossed the border, You know, a strange feeling must have begun to sunk in. It must have hit them like a a ton of bricks, actually. A feeling of joy, well, because they they don't have to deal with a ton of bricks anymore, but, but also a feeling of fear because 
what now? Where do we go now? What do we do now? I'll let the teenagers in on a little secret here. As much as parents want you to have a plan, as much as they want you to have your, your full future kind of mapped out, the truth of the matter is that they don't even have their own lives figured out. They, don't, they talk a big game, but they don't have their lives plotted out to, down to the finest detail. And I venture to guess that it's, it's very possible that not even one adult in this room has the life that they envision for themselves at their high school graduation. And here's another secret. We don't even believe the, the cliches that were spewed out at us at our high school graduations and that we kind of thoughtlessly regurgitate to you. We don't, we don't even believe those trite little phrases. We, we learned very quickly that we weren't as brilliant and as capable as we were told we were. It turned out that we couldn't do it as much as people told us that we could. And even though we put our minds to it, we started, we started out following our dreams. That was the advice. And we started to do that. But at the very first intersection, you know, our dreams went through on a yellow and we got stuck on a red and we never saw our dreams again. Uh, the world was our oyster, but only in the sense that things really started to stink after a couple of days. Well, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer here. You're probably thinking, what on earth has gotten into this guy? No, I'm, I'm, I am trying to be realistic, though. And if you can handle this reality check, then I think you'll be in a good position to hear the good news. Again, the reality is that neither you or I can captain our own ship as we sail into our future. The good news is that Jesus, our Savior, has said that he will pilot us. No matter what stage of life you're in, we're all in the same boat, right? Whether you're freshly graduated or you're turning 50 or you're celebrating your 40th wedding anniversary, all of us have a future before us. And we all kind of, at this moment, stand on the precipice of that future with a strange mixture of joy and fear. The good news is that we have a Savior who, like a shepherd, leads us. We have a spirit that has been given to us as a guide. We have a God who goes before. That's the title of this sermon and that is the theme of this whole passage that we find at the end of chapter 13. It's just a short, simple little section here. There's not too many, like we've encountered before, uh, there's not a whole lot of you know, hermeneutical or translation kinds of difficulties. We have a very simple, straightforward account here. And so I think we have the perfect opportunity this morning to consider two very basic propositions. The first is an encouraging fact, and the second is an ensuing act. Okay, so I'll give, I'll give both of these to you now at the start, 
and then we'll uh, take some time to consider each of them in turn. The first thing that we need to see from this text is the Lord lovingly leads. The Lord lovingly leads. Thus, number two, his people faithfully follow. His people faithfully follow. I don't think simpler points could ever possibly be made in a sermon. At the same time, I can't think of anything more profound. I can't think of a truth more sublime that we need to be reminded of over and over and over again. So in the first place, remember this, that the Lord lovingly leads. We've seen this really through the entire book of Exodus thus far, haven't we? In fact, where we left off last week, this, uh, the subject of the repeated refrain all throughout verses 1 to 16 was that the Lord brought his people out of Egypt with a strong hand. And that strong hand was not just for the striking of his enemies with plagues, although it was certainly for that. It was also for the protective leading of his people out of that place. It'll be, I think it's really helpful, at least it is for me, to recall the, the different prepositions that are used along with that phrase, the strong hand. By the strong hand of the Lord, he brought. Now, that, there, there's a couple of different prepositions that go along with that, and each of them, I think, are very important. The first is that with his strong hand, he brought us out. He brought us out. I suppose that's the obvious one, you know, that his, the Lord brought his people out of Egypt. And with that kind of construction, the emphasis is on the, the starting location, if you will. It's Egypt. And that, the significance of that, of course, is that that was a bad place for the Israelites. That was, uh, for them, it was the land of their slavery. It was the place of their oppression. And the Lord brought them out of that place, out of that starting location. But that's not the full story, you understand. And it's not even half the story, if I could go that far. Because God's promise to the patriarchs was, was, was centered on a destination. Not a starting point, but a destination. The promise to the patriarchs is, is based on a final location, a resting spot. And so Abraham, we read in the book of Hebrews, was, was looking forward to a lasting city, a city that had foundations. So I think much more interesting than the, pro, than the little preposition out is the preposition into. The Lord's strong hand is bringing his people into something. And that construction is found, for example, in verses 5 and 11. You could just glance down there and put your eyes on it. Bring you into. The Lord not only brings his people out of a bad land, he's committed to bringing them into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you're an Israelite, if you're departing in haste from Egypt in the middle of that night, 
and you're paying attention to the language that Moses is speaking on behalf of the Lord. When he's talking about the Lord's strong hand and he's talking about bringing you out of and into, I suspect that you would find that language incredibly encouraging. How wonderful to know that that strong hand that, is, that you've just witnessed work mighty wonders for you and for your salvation, how encouraging it is to know that that same hand is going to lead you all the way to the place that you're going. It's going to be with you. It's going to guide you all the way until you come into your inheritance, until you finally receive the promise. How comforting to know that all the way my Savior leads me. Not just part of the way. You know, he hasn't rescued you. He hasn't brought you out of your situation just to abandon you. Or like he does, like our moms did uh, first day of kindergarten, if you can remember back that far. Um, you know, just kind of, we feel her hand on the back of, on our backs, but then it's gone. And then she's gone. She's pushed us and then she's snuck out. This is not the way that the Lord operates. He doesn't rescue you just to abandon you. And and understand this, that the Lord's plan for you was not just for your salvation. The Lord's plan for you, the reason that he has predestined you and called you is for your glorification, which is the final step, the final stage. He has committed to bringing you all the way to that stage. And so you can be confident that his strong hand is going to be upon you until such a time. He who brought you out of will surely bring you into. Now, that's good news when you're standing on the precipice of the future. I think it was Corey Ten Boom who said, never be afraid to trust in an unknown future. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That's good. I I butchered that. So let me just say it again. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And the Lord God has certainly been revealing himself. He, He has been making himself known to us through the pages of the book of Exodus. And even in our passage today, there are certain of God's attributes that are on display, that are revealed to us, so as to inspire our confidence in his guidance. And I want to just highlight three. The first is God's omniscience. God's omniscience. That's one of those $10 theological terms. It sounds kind of confusing, but when you break it down, it's it's really not so bad. You You know what science is, right? Science is, the word means knowledge, And people that study science are into the study of knowledge. Omni, that's a prefix meaning all. All. So to say that God is omniscient is to say that God has all knowledge. He has a thorough, he has an exhaustive understanding of everything. Scripture teaches us that everything is laid bare before the eyes of the Lord. There's nothing that escapes his notice, and there's nothing that goes beyond his knowledge. He knows the end from the beginning. 
he even understands our hearts. That's how penetrating is his knowledge. He, he knows our thoughts from afar off. Even before they're clear to us, he knows them full well. We are known by God. That potentially is a scary thought, but if you have experienced what Pastor Matt was explaining earlier, if you've experienced atonement, if you have been made right with God, to know that you are known by him is unbelievably comforting. God's omniscience comes at such a contrast to our knowledge. By comparison, we basically know nothing. Okay, we, um, we just, for all of our schooling, our um, high school, our post-secondary education, whatever we've been um, privileged to have, all of it together is barely scratching the surface of all knowledge. And we ourselves know basically nothing. We think we know a lot, but we don't. And I think even the news this week bears that out. Um, For example, it turns out that our confidence in our ability to do deep sea exploration is at the moment a little unfounded. And even if you spent the whole day listening to the talking heads on CNN, you know, all the correspondents and the ambassadors and the military experts that they trotted in, you still would not be any closer to understanding what the heck is going on in Russia. And still less can we know the road that lies ahead of us. We, we have very imperfect knowledge of the past and the present, let alone the future. We have no clue. And that's quite literally true of, of the roads that are before us. And that's why we typically, when we're driving, we, uh, we use some sort of GPS. Uh, we use Google Maps maybe or an app that I've been using recently, my Chilean friends introduced me to it a few months ago, an app called Waze, W-A-Z-E. So for example, if I have to go to an appointment in Rochester, I simply you know, plug in the address and Waze will show me two or three different uh, routes that I can take. And on those overviews, I can see things like different construction zones, uh, red lines where the traffic is really thick, maybe some tolls that I'll have to pay if I go a certain way. It even calculates based on the mileage and the recommended speed limits uh, when I'm the precise moment that I'm going to get there. See, left to ourselves, we, we have only kind of a street level view. We can only see a few hundred feet in front of our own vehicles. So what we need, we understand, is a, a higher view. We need an overview. We need information from satellites so that we can see from the top of what actually is going on. We need for us a route that's mapped out from the end to the beginning. Now, how much more is this true with the metaphorical road that lies before us? You know, from our limited knowledge, from our small, narrow perspective, everything is dark a few feet in front of us. And we stumble with uncertainty towards it. 
What we truly need, friends, I, I hope this point is obvious and you'll readily agree, what we really need is to be led by a God who sees and knows everything perfectly from where he sits above the circle of the earth. We need not just a God who is all-knowing, but a God who delights to reveal that and to lead in the light of that knowledge. So in this passage, we're treated to just kind of a quick glimpse from the divine perspective. The Israelites are leaving Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. And if you were to plug that into the GPS, there's like two or three different ways that you get there. One is to the north of where they currently are in in the Goshen area. One is just kind of directly north by way of the sea. In fact, it's called uh, in Latin the Via Maris, the way of the sea, if you prefer. So, and that's a, that's a very short, direct route. And so if you need a little mnemonic here, think Maris, think short. <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> and think dangerous, dangerous. Because while this is the quick, direct, well-watered way to the promised land, this route goes straight through the land of the Philistines, who were already by this time well-known for their violence and for their warmongering. And these, these folks would see a group like the Israelites with all of their flocks and herds, with all of their gold and silver and their nice clothes, And they would, the Philistines would think nothing of warring with them, of making their lives absolutely miserable. Now, the people don't know this. They've been stuck in Egypt for 400 some odd years. The Philistines aren't on their radar at all, but God knows it. And he has a, a, a thorough knowledge, you can see, of geopolitics and of the motivations and the intentions of a pagan people. And not only that, but he knows the hearts of his people. He knows that that seeing such conflict so soon, after having gone through the events of the Exodus and the 10th plague and all of the rest, that so soon to be engaged in that kind of a conflict would be a major discouragement for them. And in spite of what verse 18 tells us, which I understand potentially could be a little bit confusing, I told you just a few minutes ago that there's no major translation issues in this passage. There actually is. uh, Where it says that the Israelites went out equipped for war, there's there's a lot of um, uncertainty about how that Hebrew word should be translated. Is are we to be left with the idea that they had all kinds of swords and armor ready for battle? Um, scholars think perhaps a better understanding of it is that they were arrayed or that they went out kind of arranged for battle. And we've seen this before that God um, viewed this, his people, what he was doing with his people is creating an army. And so um, we saw even last time that there was, when, when he 
spoke of the numbers of the people, when he gave the statistics, that he's giving that in military language. And so the idea here is that the people of Israel are going forth kind of in their ranks. I'm not sure exactly, but in spite of this, in spite of the language there, the Lord knows that these folks are in no condition. They're not in any kind of physical or mental condition to be fighting a war. And the point is that the Lord has full understanding of the situation. He is omniscient. And I expect that we've already kind of begun to see something of the second attribute that I want to point out, which is his omnibenevolence. Omnibenevolence. That is to say that God is all good. He's all good. He delights to do good to his people. These things that God, in his omniscience, knows, he, he puts those in service of his omnibenevolence. He puts the in service of his goodness. The, the psalmist sings about the Lord, that he is good. He himself is good, and therefore he does good. The Apostle Paul tells us famously in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that the all things that God knows and controls, he delights, he's able, and he, he readily works these things together for good. These are all in the service of good, for the good of those that love God and who are called according to his purpose. So that when we read about the Lord's understanding that it would be discouraging for his people to experience war so soon because he knows their hearts and he knows the situation with the Philistines, we can see that God's decision to go a different route, a much longer, more circuitous route, is based on his love. It's based on his tenderness on his care and his compassion for his people. God understands the human frame. He remembers that we are dust. Brothers and sisters, we, we serve a God who doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks. Rather, we read in Isaiah that this God, our God, tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and he carries them in his bosom and he gently leads those that are with young. What, a, what an amazing God we have. Not only is he all-knowing, he is all-loving. He's all good. And so based on his exhaustive knowledge and on his unending love, the Lord decides to send his people or to lead his people, rather, through the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And as I said, this is a much longer route, much, much longer, way less direct, way windier. God is gracious in this passage to give us a glimpse into what he sees and knows. He, he lets us kind of in on his decision-making, and you'll, you'll understand that God doesn't often do that. He doesn't do that with you, he, I expect. He doesn't often do that with me. He's not required to. 
The Lord doesn't owe any kind of answer or explanation to anybody about what he chooses to do. But he does, in this case, give us a glimpse into what he's thinking. And because he knows our hearts, he knows our propensity to be uh, backseat drivers, or in some cases, front passenger drivers. And as events in our lives unfold in, in unexpected and unwelcome ways, we wonder and we turn and look at the driver, the divine driver, so often we say, why? What, why, did you, why did you take this us this way? You missed the highway. You, that would have been like clear sailing in my life. And, and you just drove by the on-ramp. And now we're on some dirt road. The, the Lord gives us a glimpse into his decision-making here so that we would understand always that he knows everything, he hasn't forgotten anything, and he loves us fully and completely. Well, let's see what the, the Lord shows us in the Israelites' case. Well, let's let, sorry, let, let's just, we, we see him give us a glimpse into the Israelites' case and what he's thinking and doing there. So let's just let that stand for what he typically doesn't reveal to us in our circumstance, which is that he is all-knowing and all-loving, and he is always leading us in the way that's not always the easiest, but it's always the best. The way that you would have preferred to go was, unbeknownst to you, full of dangers and full of discouragements that God in his wisdom and sovereignty knows all about, and, and he's taking you a better way. And so we sing, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? This, isn't that so accurate? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. Can I, how, how dare we doubt his tender mercy? Yet isn't that so often the very first thing and final thing that we doubt is God's goodness and his love and his knowledge. No, don't doubt these things. Don't doubt his tender mercy towards you, child of God. We know very little about the path ahead. But, but here's, here's what we can know as that song continues. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. He is so good. And consider in the third place God's omnipresence. This refers to the fact that God is everywhere present. Uh, where can I flee from the presence of God? The psalmist wonders in Psalm 139. Again, rhetorically. The uttermost parts of the sea? No, he's there. Moscow, Russia? No, God is there. He is everywhere present. And the upshot of this is that God is always present with his people. And this is precisely what we need in someone that's going to be leading us, right? 
Not someone who just kind of shows up from time to time. Not someone who radios in instructions from a remote location. We need a God who goes with us. We need a God who goes before us. And this is exactly what we have in this Lord that is leading his people Israel. And the Lord, the same Lord who is leading us. He's always with us. He's everywhere present. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. We, we know that in theory. We can quote those verses, but on the journey, it's just so hard to, to remember this. You know, we, we look back on the beach and we see only one set of footprints. And in every other case, we're always wondering, where are you, Lord? But the Lord is always there. He has never left us. He's never forsaken us. So look at, we, we need to, we're, we're very prone to forget this. And so look how gracious God was to give Israel a very visible representation of his presence among them and his presence before them. This is the gift that you see in your passage of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This was likely the same pillar, but it was just kind of what was most visible during the day was the smoking, and what was most visible during the night was the flames. But this is God graciously giving his people who are so prone to forget his omnipresence and his presence among them, something that will visually, visibly remind them of the fact that he is always with them and going before them. Do you know that natural gas has no smell naturally? It's essentially odorless, but by law, gas companies have to add you know, uh, that pungent smell to it so that it is detectable in the case of a leak. So that it doesn't just, you know, leak and leak and leak and you don't even notice it and then that would be bad. Well, in some sense, this is, this is what the Lord has done for his people at this stage. He's the invisible God, you understand. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's the only wise God. But for the sake of his people so that they can detect him, so that they will not grow discouraged. He imparts to himself, if, if you will, the form of a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. It's, it's pure condescension on the part of the living God to do this for a people so prone to forget his presence. And now... If you, if you can grasp that, now I want you to consider the condescension involved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. As John 1.18 explains, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known that's an incredible statement to make it's blasphemy if it's not true that Jesus the incarnate word Jesus has made known the father who is invisible and who no one has ever seen Jesus himself later will say if you've seen me 
you've seen the Father. What condescension for the second person of the Trinity who is there at the Father's side to take on flesh, to incarnate himself so that we can have a visible kind of representation of the presence of God who is tabernacling among us. And I, I'm sure you're, you're like me in this respect. You, we think to ourselves, that would have been, it would have been amazing to live at basically either of these stages of redemptive history where we could have seen and experienced the presence and the leading of God. It would have been great to be in the case of the Israelites to see God in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to see him move and physically lead us on, would that not have been great? Or even better, if we had lived during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and touched him physically, the flesh that he took on. Well, well according to Jesus, we get to experience something far better than both of those in this stage of redemptive history. If you are a follower of the risen and the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, then you, my friend, have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Uh, we recently had a yard sale, our family did, and among the many items that were up for sale was a standalone GPS unit that I bought probably 20 years ago. And I don't know if anyone picked up that TomTom. Tom. Um, it, it probably had a dollar marked on it. I don't know if someone bought it or if that was in one of the many boxes that eventually ended up at Goodwill. The point is, nobody wants that junk. It's outdated technology. It's great and it's necessary at the time, but it's a dinosaur now because we all have GPS embedded in our phones. And, and most of you have GPS embedded in your vehicles. You've, you've got it showing up, you've got the map showing up directly on your dashboard, for goodness sake. And likewise, we are blessed beyond measure to live in an era of redemptive history where we have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us leading us and guiding us, comforting us. The, the Holy Spirit, you understand, is the purest and most intimate expression of the omniscience of God and the omnibenevolence of God and of the omnipresence of God. And if you are Christ's today, then that Holy Spirit is yours. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we have a Lord who lovingly leads us. So let's look secondly, and this time much more briefly, at our part. What shall we do in light of these truths? How, how shall we act in the face of such loving leadership? What, what it, is it left to us to do? And this is where our second proposition comes in. I want to say that his people faithfully follow. His people 
faithfully follow. It was Joseph Gilmore, uh, the pastor from Rochester and uh, English professor at the University of Rochester in the last century who gave us this proposition in its most beautiful and memorable form, I think. He, he wrote, his faithful fowler I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. That, that's just tight logic and beautiful expression. He, he lovingly leads us, and so it, it's left to us to simply and faithfully follow him. Now, faithfully is in there on purpose. It's not just an adjective that we've heaped up. And, and faithfully, sometimes we speak and use that term in a couple of different senses. Okay, so in the first place, it, faithful means consistent, constant, steady, loyal. You know, like the, the couple that have been devoted to each other for 40 years. They're faithful. But faithful also means, quite literally, full of faith. And so let's just take a minute to tease out both aspects of that word faithful, but it, we'll do this in reverse order. So let me say it this way. The first thing that it means to faithfully follow the loving leadership of the Lord is that we do so clinging to promises, clinging to promises, that we follow him full of faith. The author to the Hebrews gives the greatest definition of faith, as uh, Pastor Matt alluded to earlier in the service, it is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are unseen. You know, you walk into an unknown future, being led by a, a loving Lord, that, my friends, is an exercise in faith. But I want you to understand that it's not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. It's not exactly like those uh, wiki wiki games that the youth play at Camp Impact, you know, where they blindfold one kid up real, real tight, so it's very dark, and they have to make their way through uh, a treacherous obstacle course, and the only direction that they get is from a teammate who's speaking directions at them. We're not talking about that kind of a thing here. And we're not talking about, you know, another game that sometimes is played, the trust fall. You know, where you close your eyes and just fall back and just hope, hope that someone's going to catch you. When we say that we walk forward and follow the Lord in faith, full of faith, we're not talking about doing so blindly. We're asked to follow the Lord actually with eyes wide open. Not blindly following, but following with confidence and substance and surety, despite our limited vision. We follow after Christ with eyes wide open, this is what I'm saying, eyes wide open and clinging to his promises. I think a be very beautiful picture of this can be seen by observing what it was that Moses was clinging to as the Israelites departed Egypt. He, he was holding his mummy. Look at verse 19. 
Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. You, you remember that, don't you, from one of the last chapters of, of the book of Genesis? And it was a tremendous act of faith on the part of Joseph. Even though he had been in Egypt, he had been a fixture there, really, since the time he was a, a young person. And in Egypt, he enjoyed all kinds of prominence and fame. He enjoyed houses and land and wealth, all of the privileges that come with being royalty. Egypt very clearly was not Joseph's home. He himself was clinging to the promise that God had spoken to his forefathers about a land that God was going to bring them all into, their offspring. He was going to give them this land as an inheritance. And even though Joseph knew that by that time, by the time the promise would be realized, he would be dead, he, want, he still wanted to be there. Even though it was half a millennium ago at this stage, Joseph believed that he would be there. And he gave explicit directions to um, his brothers and to their offspring that his mummified body would be transported to this land of promise. And, and listen to his faith-filled language. You can see it here in our text. He, he would say, God will surely visit you. That's the language of a confident faith that's looking at something that is yet unseen. And indeed, God surely has visited Israel. And even now, they're on the move, on, on the way out of Egypt and on the way to this land of promise. And they're going forward not in blind faith, but they're going forward clinging to the promises of God. And this, friends, is how we are to follow the Lord. Not blindly, but with our eyes wide open to all of his promises. Clinging on to them, holding on to them for dear life. As if a life preserver. As if to say, I've got no other hope than that all of the promises that Christ has made to me will come true. You understand, don't you, that we're not walking into an uncertain future? If I've said that at any point today, please overlook that. Please forgive me. Because if we are in Christ, then our future is sure. It's secure. Every promise that has ever been made to us is yes and amen in him. We have a home with him in glory. And he has said, he will deliver us safely to that golden shore. Move forward. Follow the Lord, his loving leadership, full of faith, full of that same kind of confidence. And faithful also means consistent, steady, loyal. And so a second way that we follow the loving leadership of the Lord is by continuing to progress. By continuing to progress, the Lord asks that his people move out and move on. You see that in verse 20. 
I think this simply indicates that we're to follow the, the leadership of the God who goes before by making steady progress. The pillar of, of cloud by day and of fire by night is for a very specific purpose. Look at the end of verse 21. It says, so, so that, that's the language of purpose, so that they might travel by day and by night. The Lord was interested in their steady progress. Our uh, friend, Pastor Ken Todd, from uh, Harvest Bible Fellowship in Henrietta, he, he's got a, a ministry that he does kind of on the side, and he calls that ministry Another Step Ministry. And the idea being is he, he wants to be able to help people take the very next step in their discipleship, whatever that next step is. And it's going to be very different for very different people. And my question, I guess, would be, what is that step for you? In what specific way will you follow the Lord's loving leadership in your life today? Where, where's he taking you? What's he asking you to do? Faithfully following him means doing it. Doing it. If you, if, if you are his and it then the Holy Spirit is leading you and guiding you. And it is for you, as it is for me, to do what Paul has instructed us in Galatians, which is to simply walk by the Spirit. Another way he says this is to, to keep in step with the Spirit. We have a Spirit that is indwelling us, that is leading and guiding us from the inside. And it's our job, by God's grace, to keep in step with the Spirit. To not grieve that Spirit by our inaction, by our lack of progress. But we want to walk by the Spirit and keep in step with Him. Brothers and sisters, graduates, friends, we're, we're going forward in, in, into a future that is it's hazy. Let's put it that way. We stand on the brink of it, and it's not exactly clear what it looks like. It's unknown to us, but it is fully known to our Lord. And it's fully known to this Lord that lovingly leads us. He's a God that knows everything, even our own hearts. This is a God who is all loving, who not only just desires, but has the sovereign wherewithal to design whatever it is for our very best, whatever it is that will be for our eternal good. And here's something that, that we learn from this text that I just want to remind you in closing. He seldom takes us on the shortest, easiest, most carefree route, but he always takes us on the best one. And he's always with us, by night and by day. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. And he's determined that he will bring us all the way home to glory. And, and so what can we do but faithfully follow? Clinging to his promises and continuing to make steady progress by his grace and for his glory. Amen? Amen.